Digital Consciousness Radio, where we aspire, we desire, we conspire and delight in the delicious words of human awareness, driving it deep into the hearts of every being, whether it be in our business lives, our personal lives, or even our conscious lives, and perhaps giving you a hmm moment just makes you stop and think about the world that it is that we live in today. Digital Consciousness Radio, digitally enhancing humanity. Hello to all my Digital Consciousness TV fans and followers and community. I hope you are enjoying the series that is Digital Consciousness TV, where we get to interview some of the greatest minds in the world in a very candid approach via Skype. So it's almost like having a cup of coffee with them. And that is my gift to you. So today's gift and the coffee session we are having is going to be with the great mind of Jack DeLosa. Now, for people who do not know who Jack DeLosa is, he founded The Entourage and he did this in order to actualize his vision to push civilization forward, uh, enabling people to live life on purpose. Um, which is an amazing gift to give to the world and he's been extremely successful in doing this and and he sees entrepreneurship as the vehicle that purely enables people to be able to live with their highest purpose and values and and, and in alignment with that and uh, and what he does as well is empowers people to design life that is meaningful to them uh, which is exceptionally important and being able to find and leave their fingerprint their unique fingerprint to the world Now, how Jack and the entourage, and I like this, the way that they actually uh, define um, entrepreneurship is it breaks away from the traditional finance-centric ideals. Rather than focusing on the the pursuit of finance, uh, he he speaks to the idea that entrepreneurship is a spiritual endeavor and it's a vehicle for contribution which is beautiful. And when we make that mind shift, we do see the many myriads of things that, uh, that can occur. And, and, uh, and as, we are, as we do go in with that mindset of coming from a place of being of service, it completely changes how we do business today. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Jack DeLosa. Anyone in the entrepreneurship space or anyone thinking of being an entrepreneur, I am 12 years so far as an entrepreneur and uh, there are some amazing gold nuggets in here that are gifted to you, um, both from me and Jack, uh, as a gift to you for you to be able to hopefully then impart that learning and go on and create that in your life. So enjoy this gift and please, if you do like it, like, share, subscribe. We're not going to be able to get this out there and let people hear these messages without the support of the community. So uh, thank you again for all your support so far and I hope you enjoy the interview. Until then, keep digitally conscious. Peace. Hey, Jack, thank you so much for joining us today on Digital Consciousness TV. Really appreciate it. (laughs) So good to be here, Tanil. I'm a massive fan of yours and your community, so thank you for having me. Oh, they're looking forward to it. I've got got a plethora of questions from some people that I've been able to handpick out, so I'm going to ask them at the end of this interview. Um, Press it on. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so look, um, the first sort of topic I wanted to cover with you was looking at the journey to self, and I I have read your um, book, Unwritten, and for people who haven't read it yet, get it, download it, listen to it. It's awesome. Um, but it really got me thinking about the journey to self, you know, for, for how our human experience to effectively awaken within oneself from, say, our dream state to this reality, we can pardon ourselves for begging the question, are we waking up into the dream or are we sleeping in, in reality? And as we begin the journey of self, we reach almost like a knowing that we don't really know much at all. Um, it's all predicated on the supposition that this, is, uh, this awakening process will somehow take us on a path of becoming an enlightened being. Um, yet as we awaken to the soul's purpose, we realize that the power lies in knowing who we are and why we're here. 
So Jack, who are you for our audience and why are you here? Mm, such a good question. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I subscribe to the principle that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. Uh, so I view life and business and, and, and everything within the context of life as, you know, perhaps quite a small part of a larger spiritual game. Uh, so who am I? I'm still, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if we ever fully can understand or comprehend who we are in our entirety and in our wholeness. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I'm somebody who is on a quest to better understand myself and to uh, do whatever I can to help other people go on a similar journey. I, 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 you know, particularly today, and I've gone through such a, you know, for anyone that's read my first book, Unprofessional, and now for those of you that will read Unwritten, you, you'll, you'll see firsthand an evolution in who I am, mm. right? And so, and so I, I, today I, I'm probably less focused on, um, I was going to say less focused on self, and I don't mean that to a detrimental sense, but I mean I, I think my sort of awareness has perhaps expanded beyond myself, yeah. which is a good evolution to go through. Yeah. And um, it's also become less about a destination and more about the journey. I'm just happier than I've ever been, yeah. and I'm more fulfilled than I've ever been. And 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 no one's life is ever perfect, and and particularly for those that follow an entrepreneurial path, our life is <laughs> is is probably challenged most of the time. Yeah. But that's the challenge that we opt in for, uh, and I think it's a challenge that we can grow from. But I'm not so much concerned with outcome or destination, more so in losing myself in the journey, mm. viewing work and business as a form of artistry. And in doing so, I'm able to create far more effectively um, and, you know, I suppose you ultimately arrive at, at an even better destination. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And on that journey for you, I mean, we, we, for us to transition into that, and I've had a similar transition in the evolution of going from, you know, I suppose finance-centric ideals to yeah. uh, to embodying, you know, contribution and being of service. Thank you. That's um, right. So, yeah, what was that transition like for you? How did that, where did that occur? And, and obviously between the two books, Unprofessional and Unwritten, somewhere in between there you had some massive transformation. What was that experience? Well, it's, it's a really natural one, right? Because mm. it speaks to who I've always been. When you know, my the only reason I ever went into business was because I wanted to be able to influence things, yeah. right? You know, when I was five, and you know, my friends were getting their pen licenses and stuff and learning whatever it is you learn at primary school or whatever you are at the <laughs> I age. I remember of five. that pen license. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've actually so in, there's a bit of a detour. We've got a twelve-year-old girl in one of our programs here no and I said, Jules, what do you learn when you're five? I keep talking about the people what I was learning. What do you actually learn? And she said, oh, you're kind of coming up to your pen license. So I thought, okay, I'll use that from now on. I like um, it. Yeah. <laughs> and it still exists. You still need a license. In you. Um, so my parents started a, well, sorry, they didn't start. They, they, they were running a not-for-profit organization called Breaking the Cycle and they'd take long-term unemployed youth off the street and they put them through a three-month program, you know, within workshops and classrooms and out in the wilderness, live mm -hmm. schools, and they placed them into employment. And they could only take a finite number of kids each year. So they would deliberately, purposely choose the worst of the worst, people that were on and off drugs, 
in and out of abusive homes, in and out of jail. Yeah. And they put them through these two-month programs, right? And so this is what I was looking at when I was experiencing when I was five. I'd see people coming in literally half dead, going through a program where they would transform and become more of themselves and decide on purpose and develop direction and do all of this sort of stuff. And so at the age of five, I was given a very first-hand exposure into firstly the traditional system doesn't work for everybody, but secondly, anybody regardless of how far down the, a certain path they've gone with the with the right TLC and the right support can build a life that's meaningful to them hmm. uh, if they're put in the right environment around the right support so um, and so that was quite formative for me then the government restructured the way they issued capital out to not-for-profits breaking the cycle was unsuccessful in raising capital under the new structure so the organization collapsed so the thousands of kids that would not go back to jail or the thousands of kids that wouldn't mm. die as a result of you know a couple of them lived with me at the time it sort of became like my brother and sister uh, would they would now die they would now go back to jail because you know, the, so breaking the cycle. I'm not sure if I mentioned we're the most successful job placement agency for long-term unemployed youth in the country, bar mm. nobody. Mm. So they're very successful what they did, but then but then they collapsed because they didn't have the finance. So, and I've, I had a number of these experiences throughout childhood, throughout my teenage years, and so my whole search began when I was probably about 14. Um, and I started, and I thought I wanted to become a politician because I thought they were the people that influenced things. Mm. Um, and then you kind of learn that they don't influence much at all. Um, and, I, and I sort of started to develop an affinity towards entrepreneurs and innovators and inventors because they were people who introduced new ideas or new concepts or new products or technologies to the world mm. that ultimately made an impact, right, and a change. And so. Um, that that's that's my natural yep. state of being, if mm. you like. So I think it, it, to answer your question, from the evolution from a more financial centric place and space to a more contribution centric place and space, was just an unlearning of all the corporate business bullshit we learn mm. when we step into the business world. Yeah. And in my case, at the, I did that at the age of eighteen, and mm. so you kind of. Oh, okay, this is what it's about, and then you, and then you arrive at a point for me. It's probably five or six years later where you go. I think I can do this in a way that's more authentically me. Mm. And then I think the more we follow that path, the more authentically ourselves we become, the more powerful our business becomes as a result. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and that takes us nicely on to the next section, which is about money and meaning, because I know that you talked about this in your book. And, uh, you know, for me, the, the journey of money and meaning, it can really be, de- it, it's, it's a world in a world that can pretty much be defined by a small piece of green, pink, whatever coloured paper, you know, yeah. it's given the power to divide us into an illusion of separateness when the actual illusion is the green piece of paper itself and we give it the power to send us on a journey of absolute focus to the point of actually forgetting who we are authentically are. Um, we give it meaning and emotion, we give it a personality, we give this, you know, we actually give, end up, I've seen people give it a piece of real estate in their hearts where the people they love belong. And whilst it's part of the system of our current paradigm of survival, if you like, it's not the system, um, I believe the trick is actually learning to work with it instead of for it. So we don't end up focus, spending all that time focused on this and we chase it all the way to the grave and we actually end up seeing that there's no one there left to sort of see us at the send-off. 
So in your own personal journey from money to meaning, what was the pivotal moment that perhaps we've covered a bit of this now that shifted your awareness in bringing a balanced perspective to the Mm. perception and relationship to money? And what fundamental physical, esoterical, mental modalities have you applied to have money work for you instead of work for it? Yeah, yeah. And I think for me the key word I heard you just say was balance, Mm. right? And that's so incredibly important because I am a person, and and by the way, the research backs all this up. So the most commercial venture capitalists in the world will be watching this right now. Oh, Jack's very spiritual. He's not commercial anymore. Bullshit, Mm. right? Everything I'm saying is backed up by research and fact in terms of great businesses, great entrepreneurs, great companies. And that is that the companies that go into business uh, in search of a larger purpose, i.e. not for the pursuit of finance, ultimately become larger than the businesses that go into business just to make money, right? If you look at a Jobs or you look at a Branson or you look at a, uh, you know, in a, in a more political sense, a philanthropic sense, like a Nelson Mandela, right? Mm-hmm. Mandela needed a lot of money to fund everything that he did throughout his lifetime. They don't, they, they never started a business or started a project or started a direction because in the pursuit of finance, like the pursuit yeah. of finance is empty at best and hollow at worst. They viewed their work, whether it be their business whether it be in Branson's case, their businesses, in Mandela's case, his political pursuit, they viewed their work as an extension of who they are, right? Mm-hmm. And Job said this in one of his last interviews. He, he was on stage with uh, Bill Gates at one point at a conference and he said it's really good to see some of the up-and-coming generation now starting to build businesses and stick with them to a point where they can become great rather than building them and trying to sell them five years later, right? Yeah, right. And so... You know, there are a lot of sort of VCs or private equity firms, you know, build and sell within five to ten years. And, and I think it's, it's a portion of the world is still sort of hung over from that period of doing business. Mm-hmm. However, I think it's becoming more widely understood that to go into business from a place of making the world a better place yeah. uh, is far more powerful. And, you know, it just so happens it also builds more successful companies Mm, mm. Um, and however when people hear me say that they go ah money's not important and I go no (laughs) I didn't say that that's not what I said said, thank you I said I said it shouldn't be the driver Mm. however it absolutely is the fuel right you go back to breaking the cycle and breaking the cycle uh, you know uh, came undone mm. you know dad said to me I still remember I must have been I don't know nine years of age or something. he said to me you, you can't run off love trust and pixie dust mm-hmm. there needs to be a fuel there needs to be a commercial now I've come to view business as a vehicle to take ideas into the world however even if I'm in the business of making a difference money is the fuel that will enable my vision to travel Right, doesn't matter whether you're Jack Delosa or Nelson Mandela. You know, Branton said this to Mandela. He said, people think Mandela's a political activist, and he obviously was. He, was, he said, what a lot of people don't realize, he was one of the most best salespeople you've ever met. He said, I couldn't have dinner without, with, <laughs> I couldn't have dinner with Nelson without writing a check for a million dollars. Yeah, right. right? Well, that's okay when you're Richard Branson, I suppose. But, but there, I, I think there does need to be a recognition that with money, influence can amplify yeah. And that can be a powerful thing. So, and by the way, I also think my whole me- my message isn't start a business. My message isn't do anything. My message is f- find out and kind of discover and determine and decide who you are, mm. and live a life that aligns to that. Right. So, if your vi- if the vision for your life 
is, you know, one of my best mates, his mum, makes spaghetti bolognese for all of her boys every Monday night. So wherever they are across the state, is Andrew Morello, right? <laughs> wherever they are, wherever him and his brother and his sister, I should say, are, are, are across Australia at any given point, they usually fly back to Mooney Ponds in Victoria in Melbourne <laughs> and, uh, and they have to speak about it, right? Last thing she should do is go and start a business. She should not be starting. Like that's what brings her fulfillment. So yeah. do that, right? Remove all judgment. Just do whatever works for you. Mm. You know, my dad now lives in Dalesford, which is a small country town outside of Melbourne. Uh, he lives there with his wife, with a veggie patch, speaks to his boys, you know, probably once a week mm. and that's fulfillment for him. Um, and so, so I'm not saying uh, money is a necessary fuel for everybody mm. but I, 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 I do believe that if you are going along an entrepreneurial path or a philanthropic path, yes, you should be driven by purpose. However, don't forget money is a very powerful fuel. Mm. Very true, very true. So, I like it. No, it's good. I love it. Um, and do you think that the evolution of that, you know, requirement, I suppose, for fuel, it changes as our relationship changes to it as well? Because we evolve, obviously, in our journey of what our why is. And then we go, oh, well, this is going to bring me fulfillment now. And it's almost like not something I've learned is not conditioning myself to get caught in just that conditioning of that that's going to be my why for the rest of my life. It's kind of mm, like it's going, mm. almost allowing it to be a bit broader to allow the space for it for what I don't know could come. And so, you know, almost like having giving myself the space to, as I evolve, knowing that my why may also evolve at the same level. So interesting you say that because, uh, and this can be scary. <laughs> and let me explain what I mean. If I think lack breeds obsession right and so if we tend to lack something money love attention beauty whatever intelligence whatever, we can we we can become obsessed by its acquisition yeah. and what happens when we start a business is we is is we don't make any money probably for a very long time right so my first five years in business i made no money like lost <laughs> a lot of money that i didn't have um and and there and i think some of the financial centric motives can be born out of that period even if you didn't go into business for money you then become broke for five years and you then start to think the game is about money yeah. right the scary part is you then go okay this quest for me is about money i want the porsche or mm. i want the whatever scary thing for most well i don't know if it's most but for some is you then make the money and you then go fuck can want this <laughs> that did Nothing, Nothing for me. I'm still like empty. I, yes, yeah, I'm still completely empty, right? And, and and that's a moment where you go, hold on, did everything I just think I would, like I, like the early mornings, the motivational quotes on Instagram, the, you know, go, 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 I've been doing for the last forever. I You know, I've just got a check for a couple of whatever, for a bit of money and got the Porsche you know, and I'm not talking from my experience. I, I don't own a Porsche. However, um, that is what well, I am talking from my experience in that I did make a lot of money mm. and have made a lot of money and I will continue to make a lot of money. Mm. Um, however, for some and probably for most, it doesn't bring fulfillment. Yeah. It does make things easier. I'm now in a position today where I can focus only on my 
mission in life, yeah. right? And so I'm at a point today where I only do what only I can do. Yep. And, and to Neil, if I told you the stuff that I don't do, particularly around the house, you would, <laughs> you would judge me, right? <laughs> but sure it's, only, it's, only, it's only for the purpose of I want to be doing this mm. or, you know, when I get off the phone, I want to be sitting across from my COO or I want to jump into a meeting with my execs or after I finish on the call with you today, I go away and do, we do our made it happen circle here. Yes. With my team of 80 staff, we stand in a circle and tell each other, you know, like we call out who did awesome things nice. this week that embodied the values and the vision of the entourage. Yeah. And so I, that's what I want to and, – and then if I go home and I get home at 8 o'clock, I want to be reading a book like about the conversation you and I had before we hit record around human biology and transcendence yeah. and spirituality and how to lead better. I don't want to be washing clothes, yeah. right? In the first five years, I didn't have a choice. You've got to do it – but but that's what money has allowed me to mm, do, mm. and so glad I made glad glad I became successful, you know, and and I, and I will continue to do that, and I will continue along that path. However, it cannot be viewed as a source for fulfilment yeah. because you end up very disappointed. Mm, yeah, very true. Beautiful point. Now I want to talk to you about conscious co-creation because <laughs> again, this is something that came up in your book. So often in the stories we create in our lives. We subconsciously feed off the drama and seeking, like we were just talking about, the, the outward validation to justify why we might be feeling a certain way. So if we complain about something, then I sort of see that as we're doing that at a certain frequency, it then gets validated at that vibration, which conditions and trains that set vibration into a cellular level, um, creating neurological pathways that pretty much feed into or that feed our reticular activating system within the brain and then all this goes into this massive alchemical pool of belief um, that's conditioned from an original illusion. So once it does this, it translates into an anchor and keeps people stuck there for days, for weeks, for years, even a lifetime. And most people aren't even aware that they're consciously co-creating their own reality. So it got me thinking, at what point does it change from subconscious creation to conscious co-creation? And my question to you is how did you personally make the shift in awareness to ensure that your outer world directly reflects your inner world and how do you really know that you've successfully achieved that alignment if, and I'm going to throw a curveball, if your inner world is, con is a conditioned pre-program? So do you defrag at first, unlearn everything you've learned, rebuild or, and, in order to reach that alignment first? What, what's the process that you've gone through in the conscious co-creation path? So I think it starts with, by the way, beautiful question. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it, ju it starts with understanding everything you just said. Yeah. <laughs> what most people don't, and so, so just the awareness itself gives birth to yeah. moving to a more independent state. Yeah. Meaning most people don't realize that the work, and, and, and you realize it as soon as someone says it, but most people, uh, need a conversation, you know, well, probably everybody mm. that's, that's, that's been brought up the way we're all brought up needs somebody to have this conversation and then you become aware of it, right? Yeah. And so uh, psychology calls this social constructionism, mm. right, which is to say that the world around us is, is imaginary and it is made up. You said it before. Money isn't real. The value of money is only our belief in the value of money. Our belief in money goes away then we've got to a few pieces of plastic yeah. lying around or a few data points in our Commonwealth bank, you know, internet banking, <laughs> right? And, and, and who cares because I can no longer trade it for anything. Politics is a man-made mental construct, mm. right? Governments are a man-made mental construct. Education 
and, and how we do education is a man-made mental construct, right? Nobody, nobody ever came down from, you know, I'm not a religious person, but nobody ever came down from the heavens above and said, you, you know, kids need to start an education process when they're five. They need to go into classes and year levels according, grouped according to age. They need to do this curriculum six years in primary school, six years in high school. We should then have something optional. We just made all that up, yeah. right? Worse. People a hundred years ago made all that up, <laughs> right? And so when you realize that everything and, and like, like even the stuff that, that surrounds us, uh, apart from nature perhaps and ourselves, was all made up by somebody who had an idea and, and, and was pursuing progress and wanted to build a product or to achieve an outcome and then they took it to the world. But, but it's, it, the world around us is made up of a mental construct. And in psychology around this social constructionism, I call them OPRs, right, other people's rules. And it's stuff like you know, your success in life will be relative to uh, your formal qualifications, right, which isn't good news for me because I have none. Uh, or, yeah, yeah. or it takes money to make money. Yeah. Or good things come to those who wait. <laughs> or, uh, you know, e- even like if I was to challenge, perhaps an unpopular challenge might be to say, you know, marriage is often an OPR. That, and I'm not, it's, I'm not saying marriage is a bad thing. However, what I am saying is if somebody chose not to get married, that would be a very valid choice in yeah. my book, yeah. right? Because, again, it's just a social construct. Mm. You do not need to go to school university, get a job, get married, have 2.3 children, get the white picket fence, retire, average Australian retires with $71,000 in the superannuation and then die. You don't, that's not written anywhere, right? And so the first part of breaking through that kind of hypnosis that you're referring to is just going, oh, fuck, that's actually true. This is all just models that, that I've developed in my mind. And, um, the thing with OPRs is they often do not reflect our reality but create our reality, meaning mm-hmm. our, social, our mental constructs of the world often don't reflect what is real. They just create our reality and they form a boundary around our reality and therefore confine our thinking uh, to, to whatever boundaries we have set up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's purely about... Firstly, realizing that, and then it's about radical surrender to heart. So, one of your the sort of tail end of your question was, how do you know when you've achieved it? Kind of thing, like when you've achieved a relative independence, free of societal or cultural expectations and paradigms. And I think the answer is um, joy, fulfillment, curiosity, progress. Mm. Right? I think those are your barometers. Um, joy is a really good internal compass follow what brings you joy follow what makes you curious um and i think when you can sit somewhere and go you know what i've got i've got everything i could ever want uh, but i could lose it all tomorrow and i still i I think i'd still be sitting here smiling and laughing with daniel just as happy as i am right now yeah i think you're doing all right yeah Exactly. I think when you can find the extraordinary in the ordinary, none of the rest of the yeah. stuff matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Some of the most profound moments I have, mm. this is a little bit where we're now, some of the most profound moments I have is, you know, like I'll be walking down the street, and this is going to sound very woo and it is, but like, and, and like the sun will just hit my eyes and I'll stop and I'll look at this. Yeah. And there's yeah. more, uh, you know, magic for yeah. me in that moment than what a lot of society would deem to be material success. Yeah, yeah, 
I hear you. I have the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Jim Carrey said, you know, Jim, uh, Jim Carrey is actually, you know, we sort of think of him as a comedian, but he does have a lot of really wise things to say. Like, yeah, really interesting. He said, I reckon everyone should make a lot of money and become famous so that they could work out that's not the answer. That's not the answer. Yeah, you know? I saw that actually the other day. It was a yeah, yeah. profound yeah. statement and it's so that's true so that, you know, it, is, it is being able to go outside and look at the brilliance of Mother Nature and just to go, holy crap, how does that flower know to flower with that colour and that brilliance and at that exact point in time? Like just when you delve deeper into that and you look at that and you just think, it's just it's phenomenal and I think it's funny that we all point out there saying where are the aliens and I'm like uh, guys I think we're here <laughs> we I think might we've be landed because <laughs> yeah. when you look at the construct of the human biology and the way that we are and there's you know it just just the way it all comes together as you start looking at that with a different lens um yeah the social constructionism as such doesn't really play a role in any of that so mm. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I want to talk to you about success as well because obviously that's a, a paradigm that is uh, based on people's belief systems and, uh, and you know, I often like to relate the desire of success to breathing. You know, sometimes we are required to be drowned <laughs> in order to realise how important this metaphorical breath really is and we take advantage of the breath that gives us life and it begs the question, well, are we breathing in life or is life breathing us? Now, we don't wake up in the morning and go, huh, my purpose today, I've got to breathe. We just sort of expect it to be there. We become complacent. And it's only until we have the breath taken away that we realize how much we want or perceivably need it. So this goes for me in the same perception of success that often we reach a point of complacency and we just expect it to turn up. And we're like, oh, the universe will provide. <laughs> but if we don't put action into it, it can take something or someone to strip it, strip it from us for us to truly get it. And even in my own journey of building a multi-million dollar business, I wanted it so bad and it was a financially centric ideal and yet I was spiritually void. And when I got to the top of that ladder, as Joseph Campbell says, and I realized the entire time that ladder was against the wrong wall. So when we desire or yearn for this perceived success, we need to check in with our hearts and our minds as well to ensure that that ladder's against the right wall. So in your journey um, of what society coins successful, how did you check in to make sure that that ladder wasn't against the wrong wall? Did you have approaches? Was it just like a mental check-in or was it? Did you, did you sort of take moments with through meditation or anything like that where you realised that you were just within alignment with that wall being, uh, that ladder being against the right wall? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, for, I, think, I think I went into business uh, with my ladder against the right wall and then somewhere along the journey, as I kind of highlighted before, I think I moved my ladder to the wrong wall and thought it was about a different game and, and then moved it back later and go, oh, now I'm home again kind mm. of thing. Um, I think in a practical sense, you know, I remember speaking to a girlfriend of mine years and years and years ago. Her name was Liz. She's amazing. And she, she, we were talking about how every three months or so we feel that unless we check back in with mm. ourselves, mm. then we can tend to veer off track. And I found this to be relatively consistent with most humans. Right, is that we need to check back in quite thoroughly at least once a quarter. Yeah. Um, and she called it the ice age. She was like, you know, every three months or so, I reckon your mind frees over and your heart frees, and you just kind of <laughs> start going through the motions, right? And yeah. and if this is your path, then you kind of might start to do a little bit of that. And and the further you go unchecked, or the further you go to check back in with self, the more you can kind of veer. So what I started to do, you know, uh, probably about four or five years ago, 
was, you know, I started to go to the Blue Mountains by myself mm. every three months for two nights, three days, you know, with uh, very little electricity. Uh, I'd leave the laptop at home. I'd take the phone, but the phone would be off. I'd turn it on once a day to check if any emergencies, no emergencies, turn it back off again. Um, a fireplace, a chair, uh, a bed, a kitchen kind of, and a three-hour walking track down around the sort of valleys of, of Blackheath, which is in Blue Mountains, right? Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I deliberately stay, deliberately stay in a very small sort of hut. So incredibly inexpensive thing to do, mm. right? Um, and if I was in Melbourne, I'd do it in Dalesford and, if it, you know, whatever. Um, so I think anyone can do something like that. And and I just wouldn't plan anything. And I just I, I'd look out over the mountains, or I'd light a fire, and I'd journal, and I'd meditate, and I'd sleep, and I'd reflect, and I'd imagine the future. And I wouldn't go through any like strategic planning. I'm mm. not going that mm. detail. Yeah. I'm more just reconnecting with what I would term my higher self, yeah. right? And just creating the space to listen. And it was fascinating to me. Um, you know, I could be carrying a challenge for months. Like I, I still find this just completely fascinating. Carrying a challenge for months. And I would get to the Blue Mountains. I wouldn't have my laptop. I'd turn off my phone. I'd light a fire. And with half an hour, have several solutions to a challenge that I hadn't developed one solution for for two months. Wow. Right. Now, the answers were all, and, and it was never, like the solution is never rocket science. It's yep. often the greatest solutions are, are born out of simplicity, I think. And it's often really simple. But it's like, why don't I, why don't I have, have that two months ago? It would have been a lot easier if that had happened. <laughs> and all it was is I'd created the space to listen. So that's really what I'm, I suppose I'm doing in those blue mountain strips is just listening. Yeah. So I think that we all have happiness strategies, right, things that we do that allow us to, uh, tune back in mm. and realign with where we're going and reflect on where we've been and all of that sort of stuff. And it, and it can be, um, you know, for me it's going to the gym, it's being by the ocean, it's mm. going for a swim, time with my dog, reading a good book, meditating a little bit, although I'm just getting into that, um, writing to a degree. It's like a lot of this stuff is free. You don't need anybody else. It might be time with loved ones, it might be time away from loved ones, whatever. Um, and I think that enables you to tune back in. Yeah, yeah. Once I tune back in, I'm, I'm simply following, again, what I call my inner GPS system, which is my joy, fulfillment, mm. and curiosity, right? And so all I'm doing is removing all of the noise and all of the bullshit from the outer world and, and all of these mental constructs we build around ourselves. Mm. I'm removing all of that so I can really tune back into intuition which you know and then you know, I, th I think in terms of where should your intuition guide you mm. toward your joy and curiosity absolutely yeah i call yeah. it a soul sabbatical yeah yeah <laughs> soul sabbatical <laughs> and, you and sort of um take yeah. try and take one like at least one hour a week where there's no i don't take any technology or anything and just sit in the park and then also just look at the trees and nature and ask also ask nature, you know, for, because nature can talk to us, you know, the way in which we perceive it, we might let's watch ourselves as we look at a tree, for instance, and then do we go straight to the faults in the tree? Oh, look at the dried branches, look at that, you know, do we look at those elements or do we look at the beauty in the tree? And it almost becomes its own conversation piece when you have the ability to be able to just have that moment of, of quiet mm. away from the digital noise and, well, the human mm. noise as well. <laughs> mm. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's pretty powerful. It's so powerful. And it so is amazing. I find I'm more productive 
when I yes. have that one hour gap, I had the most yes. productive day. And I'm like, how do I want yes. to fit that all in? I don't get it. Like, I'm, yes. it's crazy, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still refer to my two, two days or, you know, recently I did it like a, a week in Fiji. And I, I do very little, but mm. it's the most productive yeah. days or weeks in my calendar. So counterintuitive, but it so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it is fascinating. <laughs> So um, on, on the topic of leaders, I wanted to talk about the glorification of leaders. You know, when we go on this journey of self, I believe that we need to be mindful of not falling into the trap of the guru effect, uh, where we are a student to life and we know that we don't need to be like that person we admire or copy what they do. We simply need to learn what resonates for us and create our own path following the steps that have pretty much already been laid before us so we can have our own unique brilliance, which of course is you know what you talk about a lot. And now media and cultural conditioning though often glorifies leaders of today, setting them up on this massive pedestal and giving the majority a false perception that it's unattainable to get that level of perceived success. So ultimately that sets that leader up for failure as well or to disappoint and train society to consistently look outward for that answer, that validation, um, you know, and so on. So if we just allow ourselves that space, like a soul sabbatical, to tune into it. How do you mm-hmm. feel as a society we need to address the topic of the glorification of leaders um, and what do you think can be done to humanise this more and bring into balance how we perceive success and how we perceive gurus and almost like the balance of that student-teacher modality that we have within us? Yeah, such a good question. Um, so I think that you're absolutely right. History can put people that have achieved great things on a pedestal to such a degree where they appear to be larger than life mm-hmm. and their achievements unachievable and their contributions unattainable, right? Um, and what's been fascinating for me because I've always, I always have studied leaders like that, right? But what I find whenever I do is their humanity. Yeah. You know, when history remembers Nelson Mandela, we talk about the most revered political activist or the most revered revolutionary or freedom fighter ever, ever, you know, ever to walk the earth. And, um, and it almost gives this perception of this path elegantly walked, always understood, completely capable, this visionary going, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to do and garners all of the resource and all of the support and strives gallantly towards this outcome and achieves it gracefully. It's just not the reality, yeah. right? And, and, when you, and when you study these people, you know, like I was, you know, I'll get that in a second, but when you study these people, uh, you find that their path is just as messy as ours you find that their insecurities are just as loud as ours. Yep. You find that their shortcomings are just as apparent as ours and that they're really no different, right? And I, so I think there can be value in just taking away the pedestal. Yep. You know, I was fortunate enough in 2014 I spent a week on Necker Island with Sir Richard Branson and it's his, you know, it's his home and um, the day before I got there, so as I was travelling there, uh, Virgin Galactic lost one of their spaceships over the Mojave Air and Spaceports over the Mojave Desert over California. Uh, the pilot sort of ejected his seat and, and pulled his parachute and returned to Earth with serious injuries and the co-pilot, uh, Michael Alsbury, lost his life, uh, which, which was you know, incredi- incredibly sad. 
And so as I was flying into NECA, Branson was flying out of NECA to go to California to to spend time with the family and Mm. spend time with the staff, you know, 400 staff at Virgin Galactic had watched this thing happen and then learned that they lost a friend uh, in the the crash. Um, And then the next day Branson came back and so I I spent a week in the home of one of the greatest business icons the world has ever seen Mm. during his large, the largest crisis of his career. And what was fascinating was his humanity and just he'd sit around in board shorts thinking and pondering and talking and we'd have dinner, he'd have a glass of red and, you know, just just like you or I, you know. Mm. Um, you know, this is someone that's been knighted for entrepreneurship and he's worth, you know, no one knows, call it $8 billion, uh, but enough. Um, and so... Yes, I think the glorification of leaders takes away their humanity, which is actually, to me, more impressive than their achievements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think from a cultural perspective, how do you re, uh, how do you sort of shift that? It's purely around this, not having a preconceived idea of what success mm-hmm. is. The minute you go, everybody has a different definition of success because you could put 99.99999% of people in Richard Branson's shoes tomorrow and they would fucking hate it. They would hate it because the pressure, the demands, the time expectations, we see the islands and we see the boats and we see the the fly around on jets or whatever. (laughs) <laughs> we go, oh, you know, you'd love to be a billionaire. It's like, no, you, you, you don't, mm. right? Like someone wrote a book, you know, do you really want to be a billionaire? It's like on average, and again, I don't prescribe to this as um, necessarily need to be true for everybody, but generally speaking, billionaire, a couple of heart attacks, four divorces, mm. new lawsuit every week, you know, there's always another side to the reality. Um, and so what, what I think we can better understand as individuals as part of a larger culture is that success is whatever fulfillment is for you, Mm. for the individual. And that should be as unique to the individual as their fingerprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> and talking on leadership, so we've seen through history, the history of leadership, for example, um, you know, in 1840s it was great man theory and trait theory and 1960s it was situational and contingency leadership and 78 it was uh, transformational, transactional um, theory of leadership. And then when now we're in 2003, we look at, or, or no, in 2003, we look at uh, authentic leadership and adaptive leadership. But now in today's world, we're sitting in, what I've seen coined as neuroleadership, tying this in with neuroplasticity and, and how that relates in with, um, with, with leadership. Um, do you think that civilization and its theories evolve as we evolve or someone comes up with something that resonates with the civilization at a certain frequency that we're all at, being that theory of the teacher will appear when the student is ready? Um, where do you see the next evolution, for instance, of leadership um, progressing and tying this into how we are actually evolving in our states of consciousness. I, th- I think it's exactly that. I think the next form of leadership will be a spiritual one. Yeah. Um, you know, there was something recently, I think we were looking at, 
Um, I can't remember. I think we were looking at there was some sort of business or entrepreneur awards or something, and they had all of these different sections that relate to the person, but none of the sections spoke about the person's thinking or spirituality. Mm-hmm. And we we're just having a conversation. I was having a conversation with my team about that. I was going because people don't think of thinking as a thing yet. <laughs> you know, in terms of culturally, like there's a, a lot of culture today. Thank God that now do understand they're conscious of their own thinking yeah. but i you know a lot of uh, the vast majority of cultures still don't understand that thinking is something you do it's not something that happens to you and you know you're kind of driving the bus and responsible for that shit um, <laughs> and so i so i think the next form of leadership culturally is one is 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 probably and and I'm not coming from a biased perspective here when I say that it's the conversation you and I are having now yeah. it's the leader who can speak to the heart mm. as opposed to the intellect mm. it's the leader who can speak to the soul yeah. right um and I th- I think and you know Oprah talks about this you know she says you know 20 30 years ago she'd be sitting around with one or two of her friends and they'd be talking about spirituality mm. and they'd remark to themselves, oh, we could never have this conversation out in the real world because back then they couldn't. Yeah. You know, they would have been viewed as if they had three heads kind of thing. Yeah. And Oprah says, today I have a network that's based <laughs> around this conversation. So it's amazing to her to see just the evolution in consciousness of humanity even over the last 20 minutes and 20 minutes in the grand scheme of mm. things is like point. Zero 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 two of a second, right? So, yeah. in terms of an evolutionary sense, it's not much at all. And so, to go from can't talk about it in public to have a network, a very successful network that talks about consciousness and mm. choosing a better life and creating and all of that sort of stuff, is is remarkable evolution. But I still think we haven't reached the tipping point yet. Yeah. It's it's it's. I wouldn't say it's yet become. Uh, common culture. I'd say it's mm. becoming a lot more, you know, the com- conversations like these are becoming a lot more common. Yeah. But it's probably what, I don't know, 8% of the population are sort mm. of thinking like this. And so, and so I think the next frontier of leadership belongs to those who understand that the intellect driven industrial age way of thinking and operating is good and we can't neglect it however we do need to now go deeper yeah yeah definitely yeah I mean I've even noticed it in my 12 years of being in boardrooms and things like that I've noticed that it, it was just saying it to someone today that um I had a meeting today or yesterday and it was with um there were four guys around the table they were all in the building industry and we were talking about mindfulness meditation <laughs> and I'm like this is so awesome <laughs> So it's Macquarie happening. Bank, Macquarie Bank have meditation classes. I love it. Yeah. Right? Boston Consulting Group now have a um, a red flag report. Right? Boston is one of the most respected mm. management consultants yes. in the world. Yeah. Red, red flag report. So if you're billing too many hours, it, it generates a report to your manager and then your manager comes and checks in and goes, are you okay? Do you think you could work a little bit less? <laughs> like, like a traditional prestigious corporate consulting group mm, mm. 20 years ago it was like it was the opposite That's you'd it. get a red flag report if you weren't billing enough hours <laughs> it's amazing isn't it it's good, nice to see i mean i i also presented at a school uh, a school recently and they're actually one of the first schools that are going to be bringing in in i think in wa i'm not sure if it's australia but a wellness center that they're building a specific wellness center and they're going to have a technology free zone and a mindfulness meditation zone and you know so that kind of stuff really 
you know, excites me because it means the next generation are getting pre-prepared for what will be this new form of leadership, hopefully within our generation. So that's right. That's awesome. And imagine, imagine the generation after that generation if we're still here. <laughs> we're going to be floating. Yeah. <laughs> no, one, yeah. no one will be talking. It will all be telepathy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I look forward to those days. Yeah, me too. It will be so much more efficient. We won't need mobile phones. We won't need Skype. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't find that too disbelievable. Yeah, me either. Now, look, I always put out to the, at the end of my, my interviews the questions that come from the community, the digital consciousness community. So uh, is it okay with you if I ask you a few of those and then we can, uh, we can also let people know where they can find out more about you um, at yeah. the end of this. So the first question comes from um, St- Steph Svandos and he, uh, I found it quite an interesting question. He said, how do you feel the ne- in the next three to five years we're going to have a vast majority of the population potentially having access to the internet for free? powered by the constellation of, say, what's saying that it's going to be 648 satellites. So we've got Branson competing with Musk, we've got Google and Facebook all in this game of creating free internet potentially, um, you know, for uh, 3 billion more people in uh, impoverished nations. So this will be seeing us, you know, in many ways it, can demon- it, it may demonetize technology, but um, where do you see with the impoverished, impoverished nations coming online all with different motivations to the first world, how do you think this will add to the global conversation and how do you feel that it's probably going to impact the way we do business? It's a really good question. Mm. It's a really good question. Um, I think it, 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 it's an extrapolation of the outcomes we've already seen. So what's happened in the developed nations where we've had internet? We've become more connected. Mm. Um, We've become, in a paradoxical kind of a sense, perhaps more isolated in a personal sense, yep. you know, in a proper connection sense. Yeah. But sit down with a bottle of red wine type thing, less of that. Um, a lot of opportunities for commerce, which is great for developing yeah. nations, you know, really important. Mm. Uh, a uh, More opportunities for... Um, like bullying and tearing people down, mm. um, more opportunity for crime digitally. And so I think if you just look at, look, look at all of the outcomes that have happened until now in the developed nation and then extrapolate that out so that it's not three or four billion people but it's seven or eight billion people, um, you start to get a pretty good understanding uh, as to how that will look. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. And so the next question is from um, Devon Duke, and he said, "What are your ta- what, what's your take on the aspects of dark and light influencing each other in a paradoxical way?" Your community are cool. They are awesome. I love them. <laughs> <laughs> what does he mean when he asks that? I don't know. Maybe um, I'm kind of guessing that he's talking about the dark and light being the shadow self and the light self, and how they influence each other in a paradoxical way, I'd imagine that he's talking about how can the shadow elements implement or, or influence the, the, the light within us and how does the light within mm. us influence the shadow aspects of self. I don't know. I'm totally interpreting. Well, there's one <laughs> argument that says that they give rise to each other, mm. right, because we need contrast in order, to, in order for anything to exist yeah. because in the absence of that which is not, that which is, is not, right? 
And so in the absence of dark, there is no light mm-hmm. because, there's, because how would we then define it? That's and right. so you need to understand that we live in a world of relativity. And so here's the thing. And who, uh, someone said it, you know, we're not human mm-hmm. beings having, having a spiritual experience or spiritual beings having a human experience. I certainly didn't create that, but s- some smart person did. And I think that I reckon in a very woo-woo sense, I think it's when you leave this body, mm. I think you go back to light yeah, and you go back to perfection, perfection mm. right? Like a really interesting study, you study people that have died and come back. Yeah, I've seen yeah. some of that stuff. Interesting. Um, they, they, all, they, they all say the same thing. I've done and by it. The way, and they, have you? Yeah, when I was like, I don't remember, I was only two. <laughs> but oh, I can still tick that box. I totally. Oh, wow. Yeah. There you go. That's really interesting. But yeah, you, yeah that, that's really interesting. Um, but they, you know, and like it's just fascinating. You know, people go into a hospital, they're unconscious. Let's say they've been shot, they go into hospital, they're unconscious. They start getting operated on. They die for a few minutes. They then come back to life. Mm. They wake up and they can tell that they, they know the doctor's names. They can tell the doctors what happened mm. during the minutes that they passed away. Mm. And so you kind of go, okay, well, the only explanation, for, you know, they, they sort of describe it as, oh, well, I was, I, I, I was looking down on the operating table in the operating room and I, and I could recount mm. everything that happened and all of the doctors and what was said during that period. And then the doctors hear that and, you know, you can watch documentaries on it. The doctors hear that and they go, but we can't explain that with traditional science so we can't acknowledge it to be true. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what? You, you see, you're not even going to think about it because it can't be explained with Like that's how close, like talking about fucking yeah. OPRs, right, social yeah. concern. We can't explain it with the models that we've been inventing for the last few hundred years. Yeah. And so it mustn't have happened even though the account dictates that it couldn't have not have happened because yeah. there's no way that individual could have had that information yeah. right anyway so you so you can study study these people and and they all say the same thing they all say when i died uh everything was so unbelievably simple mm. it made complete sense it was perfect and i've never felt such an overwhelming feeling of unconditional love yeah right yeah. and so i think we go back to that place and so i don't know if and I might need to do more exploration around this in the coming five to ten years, but I don't know if this human experience is about doing that, mm. right? So I think I think the shadow and the darkness, while we're here, provides contrast for us to have experiences, both good and bad, yeah. that we come here to do. Exactly, right? and then ever the everlasting question of why do we come here to do this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're trying and, to we come down, lower our vibrational state into this into this human experience, if you like, going a bit more woo woo, and we go in and we yeah. get we get into this human experience, and then we're going through this journey of evolution, only to arrive back at the position of what it was we were when we came in. That's right. Oh. Yeah. So what is the point? What is it? And, and on that thing, you know, just on the, the those that have died, you know, one thing I find fascinating is when Steve Jobs was passing away, right? So he was he was in a hospital, he was he was in bed and he had he had uh, his daughter, his partner and another woman there. And he he knew he was passing, so they sort of said it, he said his goodbyes. Then literally as he was passing, and this is a man who dedicated himself, his life, to artistry, simplicity, beauty, technology, evolution. He's literally passing away and his last ever words as he was passing away or whatever he was looking at, he said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, (laughs) and then died. Mm. And, And it's amazing to think 
what caused him to use those words. Yeah, that totally gave me goosebumps. <laughs> That's awesome. Me too. Yeah, yeah, it is amazing. Um, okay, so I've got two more questions for you from cool. our community. One from right. Mikel, and Mikel has asked, if there is one thing you could do, you could tell yourself at the start of your entrepreneurial journey, what would it be? You are walking a very non-traditional path. Therefore, you will face a lot of resistance from everything and everybody because the path you're walking doesn't fit in with the traditional mold or the social constructs that most of the world has built up. Mm. That is a good thing. Uh, all you need to do is tap into who you are, uh, what is your heart's desire and live a life that aligns to that. Yeah, beautiful. That's perfect. Coin that one. <laughs> there you go, Mikel. <laughs> um, and then Anne has just asked, how do you plan? So say next 10, 5, 2, 1 year, do you – uh, do you do the next quarter, I suppose? How do you make stuff happen? And thank you for being so so inspiring. <laughs> mm, thanks, Anne. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so given – so I, I'm quite – I was going to say I'm quite unique. However, I do think a lot of your audience will probably be able to relate to this a lot. Mm. I do my planning in Blue Mountains mm. with a journal or I'm in Fiji by the pool. And, and my planning is an, is an exercise in intuition. My planning is an exercise in fear. And then my planning is an exercise in imagination, right? Particularly as entrepreneurs, you know, I think one of our main jobs is to ask what if and to imagine and to dream and then have people around us that are great at turning that into reality, you know, operationalizing it. Yeah. And so my planning is often that you know I say all my effectiveness comes from my connectedness and so that's where I draw from um, and then I will have a conversation you know so I'll know I'll know four or five things I want to achieve in any given year mm. and then I'll sit down with my COO I'll sit my execs down and I'll and, and we will have a strategic planning conversation quarter by quarter objectives broken down into Month, monthly targets broken down into weekly objectives and then, and then project management plans. And all. But, but my brain kind of stops there, mm. right? Mm. When we get to a certain <laughs> level of granularity, my brain goes, cool, my job's done. Yeah. I'll let you guys do the talking and fill in the gaps, mm. right? And, and so they, and this is the co-creation thing, is they love and appreciate and really respect the direction and the vision and the... Uh, guidance mm. that you know that, that I can come to the table with yeah and then I fully respect their ability to you know it's that sustain and maintain and that can sit week in week out coming back to the table and and and, de and delivering and last miling on the project so that they get seen and so that you end up with you know it actually turns into something mm. rather than Jack's dream yeah. right yeah yeah and so and so, and so there's that and, and however, it, it can't be Jack does this and they do that because then disconnect can form mm -hmm. and so there does need to be an element of overlap in the two. Yeah, it's right. just that they know I'm really, really good here and I know they're really, really good here mm. and provided we are connected, yep. then that is a beautiful dynamic. Mm. 
Awesome. Now that book you just pulled up. Do you want to pull that yeah, book out again? Yeah, sorry, let's, that wasn't let's a promotion. Show. No, no, but let's do it. I want. I've read yeah. this. Book. I've, read, I've read the book and I love it. I really want people to know where they can, uh, what it looks like, where they can find it. So tell us a bit about your book. And uh, it's only just come yeah. out, hasn't it? Well, it hasn't even. So it comes out on April the twenty seventh. Oh, so how did I get it? It's on well, iTunes. No, I know, and, 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 it, and it shouldn't be, but it is, uh, well, which is great. fine. But uh, the book is, um, it's kind of everything you and I have discussed today. You, mm. you and I need to have a glass of red wine sometime, <laughs> clearly. But um, the, I, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I've spent a lot of time studying history, those who have shaped it, those who have influenced humanity. And not from the lens of how do we copy them because I believe to copy the greats is to not learn from them. But to ask the question, what were the guiding principles that they had? What was their thinking? What was, what was going on in their heart? What was their level of consciousness mm. that enabled them to not only get so much out of themselves but also to touch the hearts of so many others to mobilize in some instances like a Mandela millions of people towards mm. one common objective. And I, and, and I don't think... We should all, you know, to, to our discussion earlier, it's not about becoming the next Nelson Mandela. It's mm. not about becoming the next Oprah Winfrey or Richard Branson. It's about going because, you know, the only thing that all of those people, some of the names that I mentioned, have in common, the only thing they did the same is that they all did it different. Yeah. They all did it different according to who they are. Like look at a Branson, mm. adventurous, wants to do things he knows little about so he can learn a whole bunch and go on adventure. Then look at Buffett has a, what he calls a circle of competence, wants to stay in it, doesn't want to, you know, you go, I like the bets where I can step over the hurdle. It's just an mm. easy win. And, you know, my number one rule is don't lose money and my number two rule is don't forget rule number one. Like, <laughs> and, and Buffett, you know, not really interested in media and the flash, whereas Branson loves PR because yeah. it can build his businesses. And build, completely opposite, mm. right? And then you look at Oprah again, completely opposite, right? Mm. Um, so all they did is... is, is tune into who they are, what is the contribution they want to make mm. here on planet Earth and, and then lived a life that aligned to that gracefully and unapologetically. So Unwritten is my attempt at bringing together the mosaic of human potential to examine how do we, uh, how, how, does it, how does one build themselves in the most effective way possible and create themselves according to who they truly are uh, and then live a life that enables them to achieve success however they define it. Yeah. And, and probably a better word than success is to achieve the legacy yeah. that they want to achieve, whether that is have a child, whether that is I don't want to do anything, whether mm -hmm. that is build a multi-billion dollar business mm -hmm. or large-scale societal change. It's about removing the judgment, coming back to heart, what do you yeah. want and some principles that can enable you to fulfill that. Mm -hmm. Mm, beautiful. There it is. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Good is a really good read. I'm actually glad I was able to divinely get a copy yeah. of that before. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It worked out really well, obviously, on purpose. <laughs> but I did enjoy it and thank you so much. And uh, so if people want to find out more about you, Jack, where, where do they go? Point them in the direction of where they need to go to find out more about you. Yeah, so if you want to learn about the book, go to reinvent-tomorrow.com. That's the tagline of the book, reinvent tomorrow so in the website reinvent-tomorrow.com uh, yep. uh to, to learn about me and then our education institution you know so we deliver educational programs that enable people to live a life on purpose whether that's run your own business or not doesn't really matter 
and that's called The Entourage. So that's just the-entourage.edu.au. Um, so through all of those channels, you'll I'll chuck, I'll chuck all out. those links into the uh, body of the of the post as well, just so they can quickly get to it if they need to. So thank you so much for gifting us an hour of your time. We went a bit over, but of course, I reckon we could talk for days. We could. <laughs> but, uh, we could but I do really appreciate you making the time in, in, in what is, I'm sure, a very busy schedule. So thank you so much, Jack, for spending time with us on Digital Consciousness TV. One more quick question that I ask every single person on this interview is what do you think it means to be digital, digitally conscious? Uh, so, sorry, the grunt is because it's such a good question. <laughs> um, what does it mean to be digitally con- uh, consciously and wholly yourself in the digital age? I love it. Beautiful, succinct, perfect. <laughs> Thank yeah, you. and I'm a big fan of you, Tanil, and, and I'm now a big fan of your community given the, the caliber of questions that came through. So thank you very much for the conversation and the contribution to all of your guys that sent through questions. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>